Okay, I'm on recording. There we go. So, well, it's been eight weeks of doing this series, I guess, because of me missing. Pardon me being absent last week, but Tyler was here. I can't believe I missed that. He didn't even tell me he was here. That's too bad. So we've been, uh, you know, we've been doing this series. Going to try to wrap it up today. We may wrap it up next week. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But uh, week after week, uh, we keep saying that this Bible here that we have is one complete, total, unified narrative. And what makes, you know, what make, makes the Bible so strange and so peculiar and seemingly contradictory is the fact that it, it is one story, but it has 66 different books about 35 different authors, and it's written over a time span of about 1,500 years. And if I were to go ahead and ask you or give you any other collection of historical literature and said that it had 66 different books, 35 different authors, and if it was written over a time span of 1,500 years, you'd think I was crazy to trust that book as true or to trust it as one complete story. Um but when you look at this book and when you read this book, you find out that's just the case. It's one story. If you look at it in its historical, metaphorical context, you'll find out real quick that this book is about one God, one mission, one plan, and one person. And the story of this book, we started out in Genesis 3, is that death comes into the world. And the whole mission from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is God says, I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to destroy it. Genesis 6, we see that God uses judgment to defeat death. He uses judgment to wipe out sin, but he always provides a way of escape for his people. Exodus 19, he brings the people out of a land of death. He brings them out of death into the promised land. It's another promise we see in the New Testament. In Ezekiel 37, the power of the word of God raises dead people to life. And in Romans 6, the power of God gives dead slaves, formerly dead slaves, freedom from their old captor. So the entire story of the book, of this book right here, hinges on this one word, death. Okay, but it also hinges on how God saves his people from death and how he destroys it finally. So the end of the book is this book called Revelation, and that's where we're going to be today. And it details the finality of God's victory over death. And God's victory is not to simply judge his enemies. It's not simply to judge the, the, the wicked. His goal was actually more or less to restore a dead world back to its original order. And the, realize, the realization we need to have today is that what you believe about the end matters. You know that? What you believe about the future will dictate and it will govern how you live life today. And that's what I want to learn from Revelation. We'll be in uh, Revelation 20 and verse 11 through Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. All right. Starting in verse 11, chapter 20, it says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, and they were standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And to him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Rest your spirit upon me. Let the Bible speak, Lord. That's all I ask. Just open up our hearts to the word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, so, I think I'm using the clicker today. See if this works. Forgot. Hey, that was way overhead. Let it go a little bit. Okay, that's good. So before, so Revelation, or this verse, this passage we just read is about victory, okay? Um, anybody know who Sun Tzu was? Sun Tzu, this guy right here. He was an ancient Chinese commander long before Christ, but he was oft, he's often credited with some of the greatest military achievements in history, and he's had a huge influence on how we run the military today even. And he said this once, he says, If you know your enemy and if you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. You know the enemy, you know yourself, you may be prepared for war. If not, you're not prepared. So who is our enemy? Who is God's enemy? Who is the great giant that needs slaying? Like any good story, there has to be a great giant that needs to be slain. Who is this ultimate Goliath? And uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 24 says that he, being Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Funny thing about that is in our society today and in our culture, in order to cope with the inevitability of death, we have made death into this really strange, warm, cozy, fuzzy bunny friend. We've really done that. It's so strange. We've made death into a friendly, peaceful giant. But the Bible is actually very clear that that is not the case. Death is no friend. Death is the greatest enemy of all. Death is a curse upon God's world, the force that makes earth a living hell as it is. See, God did not dictate for disorder. He did not dictate for death to happen. He doesn't want chaos, a natural disaster, or war, a plague, or poverty to rule over this earth. He did not dictate for those things to happen. Those are not supposed to be how it is on earth, okay? The worst of it all is that it holds in chains God's people. Death holds in chains the people of the earth. That's why he has it out to get death, to defeat death, to gain, to gain the victory. And in coordination, I kind of look at it like this. In coordination with death, Satan and sin with death make up this unholy trinity. This unholy trinity that ensnares, that hunts down, and kills what God designed, what God loves, and what God desires. Death is not a friend, people. Death is the greatest enemy that every living, every living thing in this world, including you, must face. Which begs a good question. 
what can stand against it, right? You can't beat this on your own, right? What in the world can stand against the one thing that every person in this world is lost to? What can defeat so great an enemy that has never lost one battle to a mortal, to a mortal man? And what can claim victory even over the fear of death? And what can destroy it or who can destroy it, rather, is what we should ask. And my answer, and we're going to build up to Jesus, but the answer is hope. This word hope. It always has been. For 2,000 years, that as long as the church has been around, the answer has always been hope. Hope will defeat death. And hope, look in the dictionary, says it is a firm, confident, bold trust in things that are to come. And that's just the truth of the matter. What you believe about the future, like I said, dictates how you live now. And I listened to a similar message about this a few days ago, which helped really get me, give me an idea of what to preach on today. And he asked three questions to help us navigate through this passage. And I'm going to guess do similar questions to help us navigate through it. And the three questions were this. What is the Christian hope? Why do we need the Christian hope? How do we get the Christian hope? What, why, and how? So let's go through the questions. What is the Christian hope? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed like a bride adorned for a husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Before I like to explain to things, people, what a certain fact is, I want to go ahead and debunk what the hope is not. In order to explain the hope, I need to explain to you what the hope is not. And y'all had five years of Tyler Josephson, you're going to get, this is, this is going to sound very familiar to you. I want to say what hope is not. Hope is not passing into a life, from life into non-existence, like the atheist says. Hope is not passing from this life and being reincarnated into another living being, like the Hindu would say. In fact, our hope is even ultimately not in passing into some metaphysical state of non-bodily existence, as many Christians would even assume. I want to surprise you that even heaven, as great as heaven is, and as much as we have to look forward to it, and we haste the day that we get there if we die on this earth, is not exactly the total final hope. What's the whole mission of God in the Bible? The whole mission of God in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is to return back to good was once good. And if God must destroy the enemy that opposes that plan, how could anything but a total full restoration of the earth, physical restoration of the earth, how could that how could that not be what God wants? That is exactly what the Bible says that God wants. How can it be good? How can it be final for the very enemy that claims the mortal man to still win? How can it be totally good for you to lose your physical body when the whole point of what God wants to do is he wants to redeem your physical body in the end? That's not victory. Losing your body, losing your physical life is not victory. And so what is our hope? I want to first let you know that our hope is tangible. It is tasteable. It is free and it's foreseeable. It's something that is physical and is touchable and it's more incredible than you could ever imagine. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It had vanished and there was no longer any sea. And I want you to see the picture here. The picture... Oh, that's a little soon. The picture here is not an escape from this world. That's not true. The picture here is not the earth just gets trashed forever. 
for far too long as we have Christians since about the Middle Ages, since about the 1200s, have said that we're waiting to escape earth, that the earth inherently is a bad place. That's not what the New Testament church believed. That's what Paul wrote. That's not what John wrote. That's not John recorded from the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not what he said. We have said that this earth is not home. And in a sense, in a great sense, this world as it is is not our home. The way it is now is not our home. You do not belong to it. But we've also said that it's not good, that the physical world is bad, which, by the way, was an early church heresy. And more, I ask, how could God have victory in abandoning the mission he set forth to accomplish? If he leaves the earth alone and never does anything with it but consume it with fire and throw it away, he doesn't win. That's not victory. That's not the point. The new heavens and the new earth is like this. Anybody renovated their home? Anybody renovated their home before? Yes. Hopefully everybody. Hopefully you don't have the exact same flooring when you bought the house 40 years ago. That's not a great thing. It's kind of like a house renovation. Let's say the house, its basics are good. The earth basically is a good place. It is a decent world. Its frame is good. Its structure was good. It, you know, the house is put on good land. The issue is, is that in this house, there are a few leaks. There's maybe a little mold growing on the ceiling. Maybe the drywall needs replacing. Maybe the flooring is super outdated. It's from, it's like that 1960, you know, whatever kind of carpeting that is. Ugh. And it just needs new plumbing. Okay. <laughs> hey, y'all, was it shag carpeting? What's it called? Yeah, see, sometimes you just need a little update. Okay, so maybe this earth just needs a little update is what I'm trying to get the point to you across. Rather than just demoing the house, maybe you just need to go in and fix what's wrong. Maybe you need to fix the leak, to patch, go to Home Depot, pick up a few things, pick up a few tools, and put the house right in, put it back in its right order. God's not totally demoing the earth, okay? He's renewing it. He's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, and the point of the hope that the Bible makes is not that we get sucked into a bodiless, non-physical dimension. It is actually that the spiritual heaven actually comes down to transform the earth. I don't know if y'all have heard Tyler say that, but that's really what the Bible says. And you want to know one of the main reasons that you actually have the Holy Spirit is actually a seal of things to come, right? It's a receipt. And one of the receipts is, just like the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven upon us, it's a, it's a foreshadow saying heaven's going to come back down and rest upon the earth. And it says that heaven and all of God's people, which is the new Jerusalem, all those who have died in Christ are going to come back with Christ and they're going to invade and they're going to conquer the earth. That's essentially the message of Revelation. And the last three chapters of Revelation are abundantly clear about that. There's no mention of a rapture. There's no mention of some great escape. There's no mention of leaving behind the creation that God created. Actually, God comes back and he makes it good again. He says that Jesus Christ is going to retain the earth. He's going to renovate, replenish it, reconcile it, and he's going to restore it back to its original order. That's the victory of the gospel. Did you know that? That our God, it's all about physical here. Anyways, our God physically rose from the dead and defeated death and that he's coming back. That's the hope. What, are, what is our hope? That's our hope. Go read the prophets. Go read 1 Corinthians 15. Go read Revelation. Our hope is in an eternity where we have new physical bodies that will eat and drink, that will play in life, that will work, and that will rest, and that will sing and praise to a God who we live in total unity with. That's what Revelation says. And verse 4 says that our God takes away all the bad. 
says, we will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be sorrow or anguish or crying or pain. It says the old things are put away. The old parts of the earth are put away. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. So what is our hope? Let's sum it up here. It is a physical bodily resurrection upon the descent of heaven to the earth. That's what happens where we receive a new, unhurtable, and undiseasable body that walks and that talks, that walks and talks with God, that walks and talks with each other in here forever. And that doesn't sound too bad to me, and I hope it doesn't sound too bad to you because that's, that's what you're getting. And I, th I think it's actually a little better than floating on clouds, if you ask me. So why do we need the Christian hope? Second question. I talked about the last sermon about slavery to sin. That slavery to sin really is chasing after things for life that will not give you life. That's what sin is. And a lot of people are chasing after something in, in life without looking about without looking at what's ahead of them. Okay? And one thing people do is they purposefully ignore the fact that one day they're going to die. Do you know that? Most people don't want to talk about it. Most people won't confront the fact that, hey, I'm going to die. This body is going to die and something's going to happen afterwards. No one wants to face that truth. Most people ignore it. Think about death. It's unpredictable. It's scary. We don't want to know what happens after. And unless you have a victory over that fear and a victory over sin and its wages, which are death, all you have in life is meaninglessness. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what it says. If you don't have an eternal hope, not just a hope now, but an eternal hope, what in life could you possibly have any meaning or purpose in? You couldn't have any. If it didn't last forever, it's pointless. You get 70 years here. You're born, you grow up, you get old, you get a career, you have a family, you eat, you sleep. You get to about 80 years old if you're lucky, and that's it. That's it. And most of the world believes that one way or another. And yeah, some good things happen in between. But even the good things that happen in between, they don't last. They leave no legacy. What's the point? You don't get to see it. If all you do is rot and all you do is get forgotten and all you do is die, your life is no better than a mist. You're just a vapor. That's all you are. And on the flip side, we looked at some good things, but what about the bad things? What about your suffering? Is there any point in suffering? Why go on? Why does it matter? Why struggle through sicknesses? Why struggle through everybody else dying around you and you have to deal with the grief of that? What's the point of it all? Why would you go on? Why not just live for the moment, you may say? But even then, there's no point in living for the moment if you don't have an eternal hope. The reality is, is that there is no eternal hope. There is no hope for today. And I want to tell you, I think it would shock you to hear that so many Christians do just the same thing. We forget our eternal hope. We keep, you know, we keep trying to be sanctified. We keep trying to move through this life without looking at the final destination, without looking at what's ahead of us. We're looking this way, we're looking this way, and we end up veering off this way or this way because we don't have our gaze fixed upon the end. Like I said, it dictates your life. And all you will do if you don't have your eternal hope living in you, if you don't get it from here into your heart, if you don't get your hope from your head to your heart, your life will be spent worthlessly. You need hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you thought about that? If you don't carry the hope that I get a new body, if you don't carry the hope of a new resurrection, of a new heavens and a new earth, if you don't carry the hope that this, this Lord of mine is going to come back to this earth, you're the most pitiful person in the world. 
because you're doing all this work, you're doing all these good things, and what are they for? Nothing if there's no eternity. You need eternal hope. You need something greater than this life in the present. Revelations 21, verses 5 through 7. Let's just keep this thought that you need transformation, and you should be craving it. That's the hope. Revelation 21, 5 through 7, it says, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the one who thirsts, I will give from the fountain of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a reason God makes promises like this. He says, I'm making all things new. He says, I'll give you the water of eternal life. He says, I'll give you the inheritance if you're a son or daughter of mine. And it's not to just fill us with head knowledge. This promise here is not to just give us head knowledge. This promise here is to give us heart knowledge, something that will affect serious change and motivation and encouragement in our lives. He says you have to overcome the world. You have to fight the good fight. You have to remain in the faith. The only way to do that is if you keep an eternal destination set before you. Why don't we just look at the, the original readers of this book? Who is the original reader of this book? First century Christians. First century Christians, right? Do you think they needed this? I'll tell you why they needed it. This is around 70 to 90 AD. These are written to Christians whose Christian lives really don't look a whole lot like yours. These are Christians who are hiding in basements, singing in basements, who are fleeing from city to city, He's writing to Christians who are being cut off from society, being cut off from their families. They're losing their jobs for their faith. They're being pushed out of the marketplace. They can't even buy or sell without this mark the emperor has given them. And they're being incinerated. They're being beheaded. They're being fed to lions and crucified by the hundreds along the highways of Rome. Conservative estimates would say that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, during these first few centuries of the church were killed because of this hope they had. But what does the Word of God offer them? What is the revelation of hope from their Savior? These people need hope. I want you to understand that too. He says, to the one who overcomes, I will give the final reward for this hope. And although they would lose family, this hope would remind them that they'd be reunited with God's family. And although they'd be cut off from society, they know they'd be welcomed warmly into God's new society. And even though their bodies would be beaten and bloodied and bruised, they know they'd get new ones. So they're like, well, let's just do it. And although they would die, they knew they'd be raised from the dead again. There's a hope set before them. Our ancestors in the faith had a hope set before them. They knew they needed it, and they took it, and they used it, and it motivated their lives. Romans 8, 35. This is... It's a huge Christian scripture, and we often read this out of context. Read it in context. Read Romans 8.35, thinking about who he's writing to, these people who are journeying from city to city, who are fleeing from the Romans, who are going from place to place, escaping. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. He meant that, by the way. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, it says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither 
death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things in the present, nor even things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not some frou-frou speech to make you feel good. That's a certain speech that is intended to help you carry on your life, true life, abundant life. And you want to know what happened because they knew, because they took this writing, they took the teachings of the apostles, and they took the teachings of Christ, and because they knew the hope that was set before them, their lives were changed. And for Christ's sake, they were killed. But they said, hey, it's worth it. Because they knew what was at the end. They knew that wasn't it. And nothing could stop their unquenchable hope. Not torture, not persecution. These were the most invincible people that have ever lived. Nothing could get through their skin. And Rome tried. And Rome failed. They really did try to purge this religion out of the world. They tried hard. They tried destroying the apostles' writings. They tried twisting the gospel into something else and making it about the emperor. And they failed. Because the death of the saints before us, the death of the martyrs, as Tertullian says, who's an early church father, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What happened with Christianity is it became the greatest plague on the earth to ever occur. And it's a good plague because it wipes out darkness, it wipes out corruption, it defeats sin, it defeats Satan, and it defeats death itself. And the church grew supernaturally because of the, because of the hope set before these people. And the king, this is so cool because... We've already seen the victory permeate through our lives, and we see it permeate through the early church. The kingdom of God actually conquered the Roman Empire until it reached the ears of the emperor himself who was converted to Christianity. And like many believers today, if not more believers today, in China and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran, believers who are even in Israel right now, they have to carry this hope in the return of the king and of the resurrection that he brings with him. They knew, and the martyrs today know, even though, I'll say it this way, the martyrs then and the martyrs now, the people who suffer persecution worse than you do right now, they know they need hope. And they know this as well, that this is the worst hell they'll ever, the worst hell they'll ever have to face. Right? It's true. And they anticipate when Christ says, well done, my good and faithful servant, you have finished the race, you have fought the good fight, here's your crown. They keep that in their mind constantly. You ask, can I have that hope? I don't have to face all these things these other people have to face. I don't have to face the penalty of death. Well, of course not for now. Who knows what will come? But I'm still right you have to have it, right? Because there are also things you have to face that are just as powerful, believe it or not. Because while crucifixion and decapitation may not be tempting you to forfeit your faith, everything else in the world is. Everything else is trying to stop you from overcoming the world. Sin, the flesh, probably the biggest in this country are comfort and ease that are trying to make you stop being a force of change in your society. And this culture of Christianity nonsense is also trying to get you to forfeit your faith. So why do you need this hope? A couple reasons. First, because life and particularly suffering in life is meaningless unless it has a future eternal reason, a hope. Number two, you can't run a race without an intended destination. You can't. Third question, this is the most important question. How do we get the Christian hope? I'd be ashamed. See, I'm about 27 minutes and 51 seconds in. 
I'd be ashamed to preach that long and not tell you how to get this hope. I preach about what the hope is. I preach about why you need it. I don't even tell you how to get it. It'd be kind of messed up. So we know what the hope is. We know that it's necessary, but how do we get it? And I said earlier that I'm going to build up to a certain person. That person is obviously Jesus. Great Bible squasher, Jesus. The hope is a person. Not just a future in paradise, but a person. And this is really not a we question, but it's a who question. Hope is the person of Jesus Christ. It manifests itself in a person. Because ultimately, hope is not just a foreseen reality. It's not just looking to paradise. It's a person. I'll say this, and this applies to you because these things happen to you. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, right? He's the first to be raised. He promises that for you. Jesus is the first to crave the hope of salvation, which you should too. And he didn't crave it for himself, but he really craved it for you. And Jesus is the first to claim victory over death itself, which is also what he promises you. And our Lord did not just raise spiritually, but physically, right? The gospel is that Christ rose physically and defeated death. And so knowing that, don't you have the same victory, right? Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. This is how you get it. He said, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning of the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage or inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Christ told John, Behold, I'm making all things new. Me, the Lord who created it, gets to renew it. He says to trust these promises as true because he is the Lord of truth. He says he is the beginning and the end. He wills for salvation of mankind. He brings heaven down. He judges the righteous from the wicked. And he says that he is the one and the only one who can freely give the water of life. How? I'll tell you how. Using this scripture. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth and who is going to restore the heavens and the earth had to first come down from heaven to the earth. The Lord who wrote the law and who wrote the truth of the word has to come and fulfill the law as truth incarnate. And the Lord who is the beginning and who is the end, as Christ says, had to first make an end to his own power so that you could come to the beginning of God. And on the cross, the Lord said, I thirst. I don't know where my slide went. We don't need it. But on the cross, Christ Jesus said, I thirst really something strange to say and he wasn't talking about a physical thirst that's not what he was talking about he said i thirst and he thirsted for water living water so that you would never have to thirst for it tim keller said it's because jesus christ experienced cosmic thirst on the cross that you and i you and i can have our spiritual thirst fulfilled it's because he died that we can be born again Christ gave up his life so that you could find it. He didn't thirst. I'll say this too. He did not thirst because he didn't have a cup to drink from. He thirsted because he had a cup that absolutely parched him. Christ Jesus traded the cup that only he deserved, which is the cup of eternal life, and he gave it to you. And what he did is he drank the cup that you should have drank, which is the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it in full. But you know the rest of the story, right? cross isn't it though it killed him 
death could not hold him. He rose in the death that has plagued earth forever since the creation, since creation was corrupted. It could not keep him down and he defeated it. And what we read in Revelations 20 and 21 is death's trial and sentencing. Death is already defeated. It's actually not something we hope for. It's something we already know and should carry us on. But what we are hoping in is that just like you have a victory over an enemy in the battlefield or just like a criminal is caught and arrested, we are awaiting the trial. And we are awaiting the trial for the prisoner, or not the prisoner, but the criminal that has wreaked havoc on the earth to be thrown away into the lake of fire. That's what we still wait on. And it's because he raised from the dead and defeated it that you can have the same living hope of raising from the dead and defeating death as well. His victory is your victory. And you know the hymn, it says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, the fear of death is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living because he lives. It's worth the living because I know I'm going to live again. Hope is not a four-letter word, but a five-letter word. J-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus. It's a five-letter word. How do you get it? Believe in him, receive him. Trust in him only. Don't trust in an act. Don't trust in a good work. Don't trust in anything that has to do with yourself because the truth is you can't be good enough. You can't produce your own living water. You can't satisfy God's judgment and you can't raise yourself from the dead either. Believe and receive him only. That's how you get hope. It's a simple way. It's a narrow way, but it's the only way, but it's a trustworthy and true way. You may be an unbeliever in here, but I promise you this is the only single hope that you have to make it off this earth alive. He's your only way to meet God. And he's your only way to be forgiven. He's your only way to find true meaning and satisfaction and legacy in life. And he's the only way to find true abundant life, both here on earth now and on the day he raises you from the dead. So what defeats death? What do we say? Hope. You people can speak up when I ask questions. It's okay. I'm, I'm not the boogeyman. Don't ask hard questions. So what is our hope if it's not a new heaven and a new earth and a resurrection of God's saints? Right? Question number two, we ask, how do we, or why do we need hope? We need hope because without it, it's, if we don't have hope, it makes life not good. It makes suffering not worth it. You need the hope of eternal life. How do we get our hope? Like I said, it's already been given because the one who gave up his life gives us the living water. There's a, man, I can't believe this thing went off. I guess I did need that slide. You don't have to worry about it too big, but there's a quote from the Lord of the Rings, which if you don't, if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings, it is a book with intense, heavy Christian symbolism. J.R.R. Tolkien was the writer. And there's a certain quote nearing the end of the book when the battle seems lost, when Gandalf is talking to this, 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 young, this young hobbit. Let's see if we can get there. And it's when all seems lost, and he kind of makes death into a friend in this quote. And I almost used it at the beginning of my sermon to describe to you why this is a terrible quote. Because I thought Gandalf in the end was trying to make an enemy or make a friend of death, like I said in the beginning. But as we know, friend, right? we have no friend in death. Death is our enemy. And then I kind of saw actually the greater symbolism and the greater meaning behind this quote in this book. It's not a friend or a comforter, but I like what he says. The truth is, it is a path we must all take. It's one we're going to face. But on the other side, he says, there's white shores, there's green grass, and a swift sunrise. And Tolkien wrote this book very intentionally 
He knew the hope of Christians that have gone before him, and he had a hope himself, and he sneaked it into his book. Because when we dwell with God, life happens. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. This is a very famous painting. I think it's called First Day in Heaven. First Day in Heaven. When we dwell with God, all personal ailments are gone. Grief is gone, pain is gone, tears are gone, sorrow is gone, sin is gone, Satan is gone, death is gone. Betty gets the real rehab she needs, right? Right? You get that new arm you need, right? I get a new knee because I got a bad knee. But what I'm saying is all that's gone. With each other and God, we have full relationship. The hope comes true and God makes it all good again. That's the promise. He promised it in the Old Testament. He fulfills it in the New Testament. And in God's new heaven and new earth, like I said, and like this picture shows, I promise you, we're not floating on clouds. I promise you that there is real, physical, tangible eating and drinking, playing and laughing, hugging and kissing, singing and dancing and praising God. promise you those were things that are good. And because they're good and because God wants them in his new heaven and new earth, they're going to come to full completion. These things that you, the good things you experience in life are going to come to their total fullness in the new heaven and the new earth. I, you cannot even understand it because you've never heard, seen, smelled, touched, or tasted it on earth. But it's going to be awesome, I promise you that. I'm just going to finish and let the Bible speak. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body that you live in must put on immortality. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the past that is saying, past is saying, that is written in the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I want you to know that that is a taunt. That is God laughing in the face of his greatest enemy, and you get to laugh in the face of your greatest enemy too. It says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you created a good earth. And we are sorry that we devastate it, Lord. But we know that through our reconciliation, both now and the full restoration to come, that you are going to make all things good again. And everything that is good in this world will be included. And all that is bad will have no place in it, Lord. It will be destroyed. It will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we rejoice in that day, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes set on the future destination, not just to look at the present, but to look at the future so that we may live full, immeasurable, disciple-making lives right now. Um, keep this message in our hearts through the rest of the week, through the rest of our lives, truly, Lord. Help us to carry the message of eternal hope in our own lives, but also to the ears of those who surround us, God. Keep us faithful. Help us to overcome. We know, Lord, that we cannot be separated from your love, and we cannot be separated from your hope. And I know those words are trustworthy and true. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.